0: As you know, these Postscript episodes are sponsored by Fanatic.com, the fin rental company that lets you rent fins and keep them for as long as you want for a measly $10 a month. They ship fins to your house, you return them when you're done, and they ship the next set from your queue which you manage on their website. They work with all the major fin brands so you can access whatever you see the pros riding, single fins, twins, tries, quads, fanatic.com and make sure to use our promo code podcast to support this show and you'll get your first month free fanatic.com promo code podcast thanks my name is david scales for surf splendor i am fighting a cold that is why my voice is odd but nevertheless this is my postscript to the 2019 tahiti pro presented by Her. 2017 Tahiti Pro presented by Hurley will be remembered and referenced for a long time to come. Tuesday, August 27th delivered precisely what we hope any surf event would. Chopu displayed a deft balance of ferocity and beauty that only Mother Nature can conjure. And the surfers displayed a bravado that, in most cases, exceeded their athletic ability and, in many cases, pushed them to new levels of performance, with many of these world-class surfers getting the waves of their lives while the whole surf world watched. For the first time ever that I can remember, it felt like there were no losers. Um, that is actually with the exception of two surfers, William Cardoso and Yago Dora. More on both of them later but surfers who were losing heats were still unlocking new plateaus of personal achievement and getting insane barrels. Connor Coffin and Michelle Barrez come to mind, surfing incredible heats and getting some of the waves of their lives, despite being edged out by Abelli and Owen Wright, respectively. And by the way, All the hard charging can be largely attributed to the work of the water patrol, who does a nearly flawless job rescuing surfers from peril at the earliest possible moments. Jack Freestone stated in a post-heat interview after he beat Kelly that he almost felt completely comfortable going on waves that would otherwise terrify him if the water patrol wasn't present. The day as a whole offered a template for what the WSL should always try to replicate. And to their credit, they've actually executed a day like this a dozen or so times in recent years. And even actually in a couple of events this season already, um, like the day that we ran at the box. But these days are always padded with lots of mediocre days, mediocre performances and mediocre viewing. Ad nauseum, I know, but fewer surfers on tour would allow us to run in fewer days and target these types of swells, but I digress. Ten days prior to the official start of the event, a massive swell aligned with the trials for the official event. So massive, in fact, that the trials was called off. New tour commissioner Pat O'Connell deserves a nod, however, for pulling together a last minute live stream so that we could all view the carnage of that free surf and then also view the trials the following day online. There were many amazing waves written that day. The most impressive was by 17-year-old Kiyuli Vost, whom would make it through the trials to play an important role later in the main event with potential world title implications. As has now become a theme with every post script that I've recorded this season, day one and day two ran in marginal surf, with not a single surfer being pushed to their fullest expression, not a single wave that will be used in any highlight reel, and not a single elimination that plays any role of importance in the world title race, or perhaps not even in next year's qualification. In fact, only one of the four surfers who were eliminated in these two days of expense of time and resource is even on the world tour. Eliminated were Matahi Drolet, Tyler Newton, Frederico Morais, and Michael Rodriguez. And the worst of all of this is that I'd bet among those last two names, you're not even sure which of those two is actually on tour this year. Again, an indictment of this fatty format the first two rounds are basically akin to a trials event anyways after those two wasted days and two lay days we began round three in eight to ten foot harrowing surf with overlapping heats and helmets made available for competitors by the wsl john john florence's coach ross williams is back in the commentary booth while john is injured Ross is always excellent and he immediately re-endeared himself to me when everyone else was fawning over this highly anticipated swell and Ross mentioned that he wished the waves were a little bit bigger. His wish would actually be granted later this day. The first heat of the day was between highly endorsed world ranked number 5 Kanoa Igarashi and 35th ranked Jadson Andre who has struggled for industry support for the past 5 plus years. With the weight of the anticipation of this impending swell and all eyes on the first heat of the day, immediately a divergence of intention was displayed between the two surfers. Despite having lesser talent, Jadson charged fearlessly, and Kanoa's weakness was finally revealed. Kanoa's constantly improved since joining the tour, and his bravado has never been in question, but it's also never really been challenged. He has finaled at Pipe, but it was in a year where it was mostly non-threatening backdoor. At Big Chopu, Kanoa did go on waves, he did get barreled, but he didn't display the confidence, comfort, nor competitive savvy that he does at nearly every other venue. He looked tentative, selective, and unconcerned about what his competitor was doing undoubtedly kanoa will use this as a learning experience as he does and i'm sure that he'll be back in tahiti for the very next swell to gain more experience jadson andre for his part scratched and went on any and every wave that presented itself making waves falling on waves he was going on set waves inside waves I began wondering how many beatings a body can physically take before it rattles someone's confidence and relegates them to exercise more prudence or strategy in wave selection. Watching Jadson, both here and at the box earlier this year, reminds me that he's unencumbered by conventional limitations. He's overcome deficit, socioeconomic, talent, injury, industry support, over and over again. It's referenced in the webcast often, but it's still really underappreciated and kind of an under-excavated story, and despite me not loving Jadson's surfing, he constantly wins me over, nearly in every event, and his resilience reminds me that I often default to overvaluing some of the more superficial and frivolous aspects of surfing. And he also seems to bring out the best in his competitors, as he did when he lost to Owen Wright in a phenomenal quarterfinal heat. Mm -hmm. Jadson's only mistake in that heat was that he went on the first wave of each set, netting his 9-point ride and his 7.67, while Owen's second wave of each set net him a 10-point ride and a 9.07. Speaking of Owen... In that round three, he was the first surfer of the day who actually looked like he knew the wave, not just that he was comfortable charging it, but that he actually knew how to play with it, making subtle adjustments for dramatics and flare and extending his tube time. The initial best heat of that day was Italo versus Adriana de Souza. Italo immediately locked into a couple of crazy ones. He went on the largest ones, took off behind the peak, He and Gabriel, actually, are the only surfers whose talent doesn't ever seem compromised by fear in any way. Other guys, like Owen and Kelly, they'll go on nearly any wave, but there's also a tension in their surfing that I think is due to their respect for the wave and the threat of its consequence. Idolo and Gabe, on the other hand, they surf it as comfortably as they surf 2-foot Baugh, or the way that Idolo surfed 8-foot Box earlier this year. Like when you're surfing two-foot waves at Duranbah, when somebody stays busy, rides a lot of non-set waves, they tend to be in rhythm for when the set waves actually arrive. Conversely, those sitting out the back, even if they're in position for the wave, they're often out of rhythm to actually ride the wave to its fullest potential. The ferocity of Chopu tends to zap most surfers' playfulness, so they are relegated to prudence to sitting and waiting for an angle or an entry that looks familiar or even safe, Idolo had the absence of fear. He paddled around the reef endlessly, road waves with impunity, and this has generally served him well. And it's actually a strategy that is usually employed by his opponent in this heat, Adriano de Souza. In the final moments of the heat, however, Adriano got the wave of the heat right in front of Idolo and posted a 9.17 to pair with his earlier 8.17 over Idolo's 8.0 and 8.83. A phenomenally surfed heat by both and the start of a trend where we lost surfers in this round three who we would have loved to have seen surf throughout the finals day. There were two surfers throughout the day, as I mentioned earlier, who simply did not go on waves. In flawless surf with tens on offer in nearly every heat, William Cardoso safety surfed two waves, a 0.93 and a 0.5. Yago Dora dropped anchor against Julian Wilson, repeatedly let Julian go on very good waves throughout the entire heat without priority. Iago eventually took off on one safe wave and scored a 5.27. Another surfer who has previously been accused of cowering on the shoulder at Chopu is world title contender Felipe Toledo. In his round three heat against Jesse Mendez, he eased into the heat by taking off on the shoulder on waves that weren't even barreling. He'd stall hard and then get a partial barrel. Ace Buchan was in the booth at the time and set about one wave in particular quote, that wave reveals a lot to me about where Felipe's headspace is at, end quote. Felipe is obviously talented enough on a surfboard to technically perform everything required to ride any wave that came through in his heat, and you could watch him slowly build confidence and Kind of rely on that with each successive wave, little building blocks, and moving deeper up the reef each time he paddled back out. Ross Williams commented at one point that Felipe was standing up at the apex of the peak of the wave. And therefore, he would just kind of get a little cover up on the shoulder while he needed to be behind it, backdooring the peak. Which is actually an easier entry if Felipe could muster the courage to do it. Which, eventually, he did. He built enough confidence, backdoored to peak, and with a head-down pump off the bottom, lifted into the thing, got spit out, and claimed it hard and sincerely, knowing he had just made a big personal stride. It was a difficult wave to ride, but it was the only one that he would talk himself into throughout the entire day. It was enough to beat Jesse Mendez But in his very next heat against Seth Moniz, he'd seemingly lost the nerve and he repeatedly let Seth go on whatever he wanted to. To the credit of the commentary team, they totally called him out on it kind of throughout those two heats. That said, it is kind of cool to see somebody confront their struggle and to make strides to overcome it but it would really undermine professional surfing as a whole to have a world champ who so evidently displays that degree of trepidation in those perfect waves. He entered this event in second and leaves the event in first with Kaloe Andino's faltering. Chloe Andino has generally done well at bigger barreling venues, but he's never looked like a real threat. He's courageous and he's technically capable, but he never really shows the dynamism of John John Florence, Jack Robinson, or even Jeremy Flores. Kaloi looks more tactical and measured in his attempts, and as a result, never really displays much risk. He drew local wildcard, Kaoli Vost, and Kaloi's strategy was to stay busy, catching medium waves, making them, and getting four to six-point rides, Kiyuli, having proven his bravado in those massive days preceding the trials event, opted to wait for set waves. He got them, surfed them better than Kaloe, and like that, dispatched the world number one. He'd lose in the next round to the aforementioned and sometimes mentor of his, Jeremy Flores, who actually employed that exact same strategy against him, waiting for the best wave, and getting a near-perfect 993 Caloe leaves Tahiti in third place as we head to the wave pool, a wave that is actually very well suited for his style of surfing, although not quite as well suited as it is for Felipe and Gabriel, but it's also a wave that nullifies conventional heat strategy. Jordi and Julian, two surfers who have constantly underperformed their career expectations, both kind of returned to form in this event julian a former event winner here in 2017 pushed deeper and took off later than any of his competitors he ended up drawing jordy in the fourth round and jordy has been building a slow ascension throughout the year as i've stated since event one a seeming marathon mentality just casually and confidently surfing at 70 percent, and not stressing over losses With all due respect to Jordy in this heat, Julian should have won. In an effort to swing for a 10, Julian ended up with only one meaningful score to Jordy's two mid-rangers, so good on Jordy for sticking to the game plan, putting two meaningful scores on the board. Had Julian made that one heroic attempt, which he nearly did by the way, it would have been the best wave of the day. Jordian made a slight improvement in his next heat against Adriano, earning a generously scored 9.23, and then got stopped by an in-form Owen Wright in semifinal number one. Again, true to form this season, and despite finishing with an equal third, Jordy never really stepped on the gas. His highest heat score of the event was a 14.03, while many other surfers lost heats with 15 to 18 point totals throughout the event, with this, however, Jordy continues his quiet campaign for a world title by moving from 6th all the way to 2nd. Aside from Jadson Andre, Caio was the underdog of the event. And now, in hindsight, maybe he actually does his best surfing as an underdog. He certainly did that at Margaret River, where he beat Gabriel Medina, Kelly Slater, and Jordy Smith. He's not on tour this year. He actually sat out last year due to injury and then did not receive one of two injury wildcards for 2019. Those were given to Kelly Slater and John John Florence, who, incidentally, Kaio was filling in for in this event. And in fact, Kayo has surfed every CT event this year, most as a replacement for Adriano DeSouza, who was injured up until this event where he returned. Whatever I said about Jadson's fearlessness at the beginning of this podcast, you could also apply to Kayo. He, too, is sponsorless, incidentally dropped by the very same early career sponsor as Jadson when their contracts expired uh, about three to five years ago. Undaunted, Kyle self-financed a trip to Tahiti weeks early to catch that trial swell and to gain experience in these conditions. That investment in his career paid off figuratively and literally, earning a cool $18,000 for his quarterfinal finish and a move to 18th on the rankings, nearly qualified for next year's 2020 world tour without even officially being on the 2019 world tour. He was eventually beaten by Rookie of the Year shoo-in Seth Moniz, who earned his best finish of the year, a third, barely losing to Gabriel Medina after beating Caio, Felipe, and Pedersen Crisanto, and Connor Coffin, and Jack Freestone in the opening non-elimination round. Although Seth's highlights have often come from insane airs in free surf edits as well as that backflip in Waco and his Hail Mary in last year's US Open, he seems to be most comfortable and also to have the most advantage over the rest of the tour in big barreling surf. Seth heads to the wave pool and then into Europe with almost no expectations. He's already secured requalification by being ranked ninth at this stage in the season. Despite all of the excitement and 8, 9, and 10-point rides throughout the event, it was always going to be an Owen Wright and Gabriel Medina final, a rematch of last year's final at 4' Foot Chopu. Both surfers posted 10s in the early rounds. Both surfed mistake-free in every single heat. Listen to some of their heat totals. 18.5 for Owen, 19.23 for Gabriel, 19.07 for Owen, The ocean had lost a little bit of the energy on the final day, mainly resulting in slower conditions, but it still offered eight-foot waves in nearly every heat. The waves started pouring in within the first five minutes. There was a lot of jockeying, they had pushed one another too deep up the reef, Gabe sitting wide of a helmeted Owen Wright, got baited into the first wave, a dud, and then Owen found himself with priority. It was clear that both these guys had a lot of pride on the line, but it was also clear that they had a lot of respect for one another. Gabe got the better waves for the next 30 minutes of the exchange, but then he did something very un-Gabriel-like. Gabriel had managed the heat perfectly, surfed really well, but then with four minutes left, and the lead, and priority, Gabe simply did not go, nor even look, at a wave that ledged on the reef. Owen couldn't believe his luck. Sitting under Gabe, without priority, he spun and he went on what would become the best wave of the heat, and he surfed it to a 9.07, coming out with the sincerest fist pump claim. On the paddle back out, an inside one snuck under Gabe, and Owen spun again to improve his backup score to a 7.90. That was all that the ocean offered and it was owen wright with a 17.07 over gabriel's 14.93 for the fourth ct win of owen's career and interestingly in the post-heat interview gabriel medina and owen wright were side by side on the boat with rosie hodge interviewing both simultaneously Gabriel exhibited a level of deference for Owen Wright and dare I say, even admiration for his surfing that I've never seen Gabriel Medina exhibit towards any competitor um, that he's either won or lost to, but especially someone that he's lost to. He said that he was happy for Owen. He seemed sincere about that. And I don't know if this marks a maturity of Gabriel Medina that we haven't seen before. I don't think that's what it was. I think that it might have to do with the fact that he actually admires Owen and looks up to him as a surfer, as a family man, and as somebody who's overcome a few odds in his life. And I'm wondering if that deference was the exact reason that Gabriel made a mistake in that heat. It was a miscalculation and um, one that I just don't ever see a very robotic Gabriel Medina do. So we'll keep tabs on that. And Owen, by the way, entered this event in 12th, and he leaves in 8th. Gabriel entered in 7th, and he leaves in 4th, headed to Inland California to a wave pool where he is the one and only champion. By the way, there's complete certainty that event will run from September 19th through the 21st in flawless four-foot lefts and rights with each surfer given equal opportunity regardless of their athleticism, instinct, nor their earned ocean prowess. And instead of fixing our eyes on the horizon in anticipation of an athlete's spontaneously improvised reaction to an unexpected challenge, we'll watch to see who can impose the greatest dominion over their surfboard on a section that we anticipated here three weeks in advance. I'll see you.